I call him Papa. I guess because he always called his father Papa. We always said, like father, like daughter. That's the way I remember him. Standing with his feet wide apart, shoulders a little slumped, his head lowered so he could look through the window in her front door. That's where he stood after work, waiting for dinner, waiting for his dreams to come true. Later, I came to believe that place was where he stood and prayed with God. His daughter, me, my name's Alicia, was both his dream and his prayer. Day I graduated from Ohio State, he told me he stood at that window and dialed up God to tell him thanks, that he considered the deal closed, his prayers answered. His dream pretty much taken care of. Before the day was over, I figured he took it all back. You look pretty in your cap and gown. Thanks. I thought Senator McCain did a good job. I knew you'd like him. You didn't like him? One commencement speaker is as good as another, don't you think? You don't believe that for a minute. Right this minute, I'm pretending that I do, okay? Are you glad you stayed at Ohio State? I think so. Good school here in Columbus. No need to move across the country. That's what we said. I missed you, though. You weren't around as much as I thought you'd be. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. So, do all college graduates wear glasses? I needed them. Since when? You were 2010 last time I met I didn't need them, Papa. I just, they're just for fashion. Didn't you ever do something just because it was fashionable? Not really. <laughs> Your mother tried, but I'm a pretty plain guy. Sorry. I better go. You sure? Yeah. Goodbye, honey. Alicia? Yes, Papa? Things are different now, aren't they? I missed you at Christmas. We all did. Papa? First time we've not all been together as a family at Christmas. We waited for you. I couldn't come, Papa. Why not? I have to go. I'm not stopping you. I just wonder. Don't stay away so long this time. Hey, you know your mother would be proud of you. I sure am. Papa, there's no, there's no evidence of a flood. That's because we're on high ground. <laughs> there's no evidence of a biblical flood. There's nothing in the geological record to suggest it. All the water in the world, the ice caps, and, and the rest of it couldn't cover all the land masses. <laughs> the sun stopping for an entire day, that means the earth not spinning. I asked my physics professor about it. He just laughed, said it was scientifically ridiculous. Most miracles are. My roommate's sister died this year. Jenna's sister? No, Carol's. My other roommate. You don't oh, know. Oh, I'm sorry. Her name was Kaylee. 
She's 15. She died of Batten's disease. Do you know what that is? No. When, when Kaylee was six, she went blind. I went home with Carol one weekend last fall. I met Kaylee. And she couldn't walk or talk, but I kept thinking about how beautiful she was. And then she had one of her seizures. That's the worst thing I've ever seen. How can God do that? Are you sure it's his fault? He lets it happen. That's not love. It's ugly and hateful to let someone suffer like that. Sometimes it seems that way, yes. You say God is just, don't you? I think so, yes. And while you say it, innocent kids all over the world are dying of starvation. The problem with evil is that it allows... The problem of evil, yeah! The problem of my mother being ripped out of my life before my 18th birthday. Alicia. She shouldn't have died! She... She shouldn't have died! Did you hate your parents? Of course not. Well, then you're not worthy of Jesus. That's what he said, isn't it? That's not what he meant. That's what he said. What he didn't say was that slavery was wrong. Why didn't he? Is that a rhetorical question or are you interested? Papa, I'm sorry, but yeah, things are different now. I didn't want to do this today, but you brought it up. How long have you felt this way? It doesn't matter. It matters to me. Look, you remember Joe? The tall guy I introduced you to your graduation? The yes. guy yes. you asked if he played basketball? Yeah. Well, Joe and I, we've been dating. I'll say the same thing I did this afternoon. He's a very impressive young man. He's so smart and sensible. I like him. I guess so. Look, Papa, about Christmas, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't do it. I understand. So tell me, Alicia, what is out there? What do you mean? I mean, you ask hard questions. I have questions, too. Do you want to hear them? Do I have a choice? Let's take time, all the time you need, say a billion years, and nothing but sheer chance and the cosmic soup. How then do you get love? Biology. Biology. So your love for Joe, your love for your mother for that matter, is nothing but biology, but chemistry. It's a trick of the mind. We fall in love uh, just to mate and to keep the human race going, right? It's just a fancy game that doesn't care whether we live or die. Well, Joe says that when emotion... I'm sure Joe says, but let me finish. Now, if I have this right, and I may not, as natural selection gets rid of the defective material, the defective species, it doesn't show compassion, does it? Yet in your argument against God... Compassion is a prerequisite for God. Yet he doesn't pass the test because he seems less compassionate than you do. 
My question is, if it's just chemistry, if it's just biology, why should there be any compassion at all? If you ask me, God is a much better starting place than natural selection for self-sacrifice, for love, and for compassion. Interesting question, don't you think? You can't win, Papa. Let me ask you. Have you done the work on this stuff, or are you just quoting Joe? I guess what I'm asking, are you looking for a reason to chuck it all so that you can do what you want to do? Or do you really, really want to know? I was fine getting through it, saying what I've been planning to say, being tough, intelligent, logical. And then it hit me, and I had to ask myself, do I really want to know? If it's just college, if it's just something other than Papa, or maybe just a lot easier to buy into what some attractive, passionate guy is telling me right after he tells me he loves me, then what? When Papa asked me if I really wanted to know, and I didn't answer him, he said just one more thing. You ask your questions, Alicia. Ask all the questions you want. Truth never has to back down, and it's not afraid of your questions. But know one thing. I'm your father. No matter what you say or what you do, I love you. Always remember, Papa will always love you. No tricks. No tricks. No games. Just, I love you. I love you too. Like father, like daughter. I want to know, Papa. This isn't college. It's not some professor or some guy whispering in my ear. I want to know. Isn't it? Because these are issues that divide families. These are issues that divide people. And, and, and what I love about this is, is this whole last phrase. You know what? Ask your questions, Alicia. Ask them all you want. Truth doesn't have to back down. But what I love about that even more is the interaction at the end. You know what? No tricks. No games. No matter what you think, I love you. And folks, as we start a, 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 a series on your tough questions, the tough questions you've asked to deal a lot with the topics that were even brought up in today's drama, that needs to be our attitude towards one another. You're gonna, some of you may violently disagree with some of the things that are said. Some of you will disagree with each other. 
But the most important thing in our journey of faith is to live what we talk about all the time here at Quest, to be friends with faith, respecting each other where we're at, trusting God enough that we don't have to back down from our questions, that we don't have to back down from hard, hard questions. We don't have to back down from pursuing God and being friends with each other even when we disagree over hard questions. But we can pursue Him honestly. And that's the other tough thing about this whole thing. The, the question, do we really want to know? Do, do we really want to know these answers to these questions or, or, or do we just want to go our way? Because the reality is the questions asked about the problem of evil affect every single one of us. They demand of us a clear intellectual answer. But the difficulty in giving that clear intellectual answer is that there are no other questions that we face in life that involve more raw, catastrophic carnage in our lives. Because the questions we ask are never asked in a vacuum. They're asked out of our very own real pain. Here are some of the questions you, uh, you asked. Why does God allow the really horrible things to happen like child abuse or sexual abuse or rape? And, and these, are, these are your words that I've, that I've just edited for anonymity, but, but they're also your assumptions. It's, and it goes on to say, I understand He has a plan for everything, but it seems there should be a less painful, less horrific means to fulfill that plan. Here's another one that I think many of you here have experienced. Where were you, God, when I lost my, lost my baby to miscarriage? There's tears behind that. Here's another one. Where were you, God, when everything was crashing down with my family? Near death, divorce, jobless, it was all falling apart. Where were you, God? Here's one that breaks my heart. Where were you, God, when I was sexually abused? When does the pain of sexual assault go away? This last week I got a call from a very dear friend of mine. He had just found out a little over a month ago that his daughter had been abused many years ago and had hidden it and had hidden her reaction to that too and had been involved in all sorts of just destructive sexual behavior. And I listened to this friend of mine who is normally the most cheerful person in the whole world that I ever know talk about how devastatingly painful the last couple months have been. Just thinking about the fact that his daughter had dealt with that pain for years and he didn't know it and couldn't be there. You see, these questions are attached to very, very real pain. Sorry. How about this one? God, I have a psychological chemical disorder that leads to severe depression. Why do you allow this? How can I trust you fully when I feel like you're going to let me down the next time the depression hits so hard? The depression is literally hell. Where were you, God, when my dad died without receiving Jesus as Savior? I prayed for my dad for 20 years. How could he die and not know Jesus? You know, the reality of this topic is that we can answer a lot of these things with good intellectual biblical arguments, but no amount of rational discussion changes the pain. 
doesn't take it away. We still live with it. And a lot of us live with it in a way that we compartmentalize. We, we say, God, I can trust you in this area, but this area I can't trust you in, God. Or, or we just hold them at a difference, distance and, and our faith becomes something that is just, we, we walk it out because it's right, but it doesn't feel right. Or we just become hard and numb and, 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 and we do the right thing going to church feeling like, yeah, we do this, but there's, there's nothing really, really compelling and exciting about our faith. I was sitting with a bunch of guys last week talking about this series, just getting some more input from some people who, who are very wise and do a lot of reading and, and discussion around these topics. And, and one of them said recently, he read this, he said that 70, he read a study that said, you know, we've got study after study, but he read a study that says 70% of people come to church angry. And sometimes they leave even more angry. Now, I'm not going to ask the 70% here to stand, just the 30%. Oh, okay. But let's, let's just be honest. Let's be real. Many of us have had experiences that make us question our faith the same that Alicia is questioning her faith in our drama. Real pain, real circumstances, real heartbreak, and we have, we're still angry. We're mad. Can we just be honest and can we be real enough to allow that honesty to be, to be something among us here? Can we allow it to come out enough that we'll actually work, really delve into these topics? Because the reality behind the question of the dad of are you really willing to look at this or not is that these issues are oftentimes painful. And we don't like dwelling on them because it's painful. And so we never do the work to really address this issue in our lives. And, and, and the result is we can look across the board in America and we can look at all the people who have checked out Christian faith and rejected it. Or we can look at the people who have left the Christian faith. And these questions over the problem of evil and those issues are always the major concerns which have caused people to leave the faith. In fact, if we look at the statistic that we've talked about before of the studies done of how people, when they graduate from high school, 80% of churched kids leave the faith within two years, it has to do with the answers or insufficient answers to these issues. And yet, because we don't deal deal with it, we don't really look at it because it's so painful to look at, because the rational arguments in face of our pain make us not want to press in and look at it. We've never really looked at it and taken it seriously. In fact, I would submit to you, and we're going to actually look at this in a few weeks, that most of the faith-based positions that people leave Christianity and run to They haven't even asked those faith-based positions, whether it's some New Age thing or universalism or Unitarianism or or whether it's, uh, you know, any number of Christian science, anything that people run to when they reject the Christian faith over this problem of evil, they haven't looked at those faith-based positions and how they deal with the problem of evil either. And so we're going to look at that as well in a couple weeks. But are we willing to look at this But even more than willing to look at this, uh, about 12 years ago, I was leading a a team of guys developing some training for pastors on the West Coast. And one of our guys decided to do some man-on-the-street interviews, especially with college students. And uh, one of the college students who who had left her faith, rejected Christianity, said something extremely wise that I think all of us need to hear. 
They were talking about this whole issue of the problem of evil and why Christianity, why they couldn't, why she couldn't believe in Christ and follow Christ. And, and, and she said this, she says, I don't want to hear your pat answers. And I don't want a God who just gives pat answers either. And he asked her, what do you want? And she said this, she said, I want you to walk with me through my darkness. And I want a God who's going to walk with me through my darkness as well. And when we talk about living as friends with faith at Quest, that is the heart of it. It's not so much about the answers. Yes, we need to struggle to find answers, but find answers. But it's more important that we walk with each other through the darkness. Because that's what we all want. That's what friends with faith is. It means we can be honest and walk together through things. In fact, I would say and my biggest invitation to you through this whole series is going to be if we touch on areas that are raw with pain for you, those areas that cause you to ask these questions, because these were the largest number of questions that you asked were centered around this, that if we touch on some raw pain, I want you to press through and I want you to wrestle with the arguments and the reasoning and the biblical stuff. But you know what? More than that, I want you to go a step further in living this dream of doing our faith as friends with faith by inviting someone into your pain to walk with you through it. That's the healthiest step, the best step you can make. Now, today we're going to deal with the core foundation of even beginning to be able to address this stuff from a Christian perspective. It's going to be a very simple, short point but as we start to address it, I'm going to, I want to give you three different metaphors, three different illustrations, and, and i got to just be honest with you. Whenever we start trying to deal with this concept of the problem of evil and God, any, there, there are no adequate metaphors. There are no adequate illustrations that don't break down rather rapidly. So I'm going to give you some illustrations, give you some things that, that at their very core, just on the surface level, they, they make a point that needs to be made. But if you try to extrapolate that illustration or this metaphor very far, it's going to break down extremely quickly. So would you just give me some grace and just focus only on the core thing? And we're going to give three different looks at this that I think all help us. Think with me for a moment. I know many of you are business people. You own your own businesses or you manage people or you hire people. So, so let's think in that world for a second. You hire someone. They come to work for you. And you discover that they don't want to do what you hired them for. And they don't do it well. And they're belligerent about it, or, or, or maybe they're just passive about it, but they just don't, they're not doing what you hired them for. Now, one of the harder things as a, as a boss, I think, is, is to write people up. Because you, you don't like to hurt people's feelings. You don't like the conflict. You don't like the, you don't like to have, it's just not fun to confront stuff and, and be worried about the people talking behind your back or negatively. But, but what do you do as a boss? What's your choice? Do you, do you let them continue on doing what they're doing and, and destroy the culture of your workplace? Or, or do you allow them to continue doing what they do? even though it brings no return and it's wasting your money and causing difficulty for your business? You know, just take that and set it aside for a second. That's one way of looking at it. How many of you have had a virus? Of course, if you've had a virus, you know you're not a Mac user, right? And you know I'm gradually becoming a Mac convert because I'm talking about it. But So all of us PC people, almost all of us have probably had this virus. 
Have you ever had the virus where you're in your internet browser and up pops this great big warning screen saying, you've got a virus, download this thing to fix it. And and you can't go anywhere without that pop-up coming up. It just continues in your face asking that question over and over again. You had that virus before? I've had it like two or three times and it's a real pain to get rid of. And the funny thing about this virus is it keeps asking you this question, click here, click here. But if you click there, you're actually going to download a more potent virus or you're going to go to a scam where they just want to steal your money. Now, you as the owner of the computer, are you okay with that? Are you okay with those kinds of endless questions designed to manipulate you? Are you okay with that? Set that aside. Another illustration. I just recently watched a bit of a movie called Eagle Eye. Anybody watched it here? It was, it's been on like A&E or whatever lately on free TV. And it's, and it's this age-old story about artificial intelligence. We, we program these computers and they become smart. And, and this story is the same way. It's, you know, it's the predictable story, just with a little bit of fun action adventure. You don't go into quite what, what, what's going to happen. And, and, but basically the government uh, creates this big supercomputer that can monitor all the phone lines, monitor every security camera that's available in the U.S. and over, all over the world. And it's supposed to be able to assimilate all this intelligence it gathers and identify hot spots or issues faster. And then it's supposed to be able to help even direct and, and create orders for police departments and the military and the CIA to take care of all this kind of stuff. And, and as the story goes and is very predictable, the artificial intelligence starts to get a little bit too strong and, and this computer starts uh, issuing orders to take out the bad guys. In fact, in the end, that it, it goes so far as to issue orders to take out the entire president and his cabinet. So this, this thing that was created by people to do something good, to serve and work in tandem with its creator, instead it does another thing and it and it be, the, the creation becomes the judge of the creator. Now, there's a question that somebody asked that, that I think is a real important one. What does God think about all of our questions? And I think it deals, and I think this, this question in and of itself points us to this whole problem of evil and deals with our core foundation today. And we've talked in the past repeatedly, and I'll probably say it again because so many of us struggle with this. God's okay with our questions. He welcomes our questions. You look at every single biblical character from Abraham to Moses to David to, to Jeremiah writing a book called Lamentations where he's, where he's railing on God of his statements of out of his pain saying, God, where are you? How can you do this? And God is perfectly fine with our questions. But at the same time, there's these interesting passages in, Ohio, in, in Isaiah where God confronts something in our questions that is both important for us as we deal with this series and important for us as we even lay the foundation to deal with this whole problem of evil. In Isaiah 29, it says, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. To me, that sounds like somebody who, whose heart's been wounded because of this and has just distanced themselves from God and, and no longer seeks Him. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. We do the things that are right, even though they don't feel right. 
Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, God says, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? In Isaiah 45, God goes on speaking through him and says this. He says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a pot's herd among pot's herds on the ground. That's, that's basically a broken piece of clay in a little archaeological dig. It's garbage. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to his mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. You see, here's the foundation for everything that we're going to discuss as we deal with this problem of evil. It's this relationship of the Creator and the created. Because in the end, if you really think about it, the only question that really matters is not whether God is good, not whether God is just, whether He exists. And if He's the Creator of all, then it makes no sense for us to choose to not be obedient, to not follow Him, to not pursue Him as His created, regardless of the answers to the other questions. But it's so easy in all of these questions that come from pain for us to, to flip and become the, the judge of the Creator. For us to say, because this happens, then God cannot be good. And because this happens, God cannot be good and cannot be just and cannot be wise. And therefore, I will not follow Him. Or I will not acknowledge Him. The bottom line is, really, is He the Creator or not? All the other questions, while important, are really small in comparison to that. So if you're here today and you're one who's still struggling with, is He the Creator? God welcomes your questions. He welcomes your pursuit of Him. But i got to ask all of us, where's our heart in that pursuit? Is our heart seeking Him? Or is it like our drama line said, do you really want to know or, or are you looking for an excuse to do what you want? Are we created seekers trying to find, trying to serve, trying to love, trying to discover the Creator and follow Him? Or are we the created judging the Creator, looking for excuses to say no to Him? Or as Isaiah says it, the clay saying the potter has no hands. That attitude and that is really the core for us of all sin. 
You look back at the Garden of Eden and you look at Eve and her initial sin. It was the, it was eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of times I think we misunderstand that. We think, oh, God didn't want us to know right from wrong. That's not it at all. It's okay for us to know right and wrong, right from wrong. He wants us to know that. What was not okay and what was sin on her part was judging God. Taking the position as the created of being the judge of what is and is not good. What is and is not just. And whether God really is for us or not. Whether He really should be followed or not. And it's that tone that warps our questions. It's that tone that prevents us from finding healing and finding answers. He invites us as seekers in all of our pain to question Him. But it's a scary thing when we become His judge. Now, the rest of the questions are important. And we'll find answers to them. We'll look at them. And and we're going to look at this issue a whole lot more over the next few weeks. But, But think of it this way. If He is the Creator, if we establish that, And if He is as good as we say He is, if He's just, if He's merciful, if He's compassionate, if He's a God who designs this wonderful plan for our life, and we can really see that for what it really is, then you can think of the best team or best cause you've ever been a part of in your life. You can think of the best dream you've ever had through movies of, I wish I could make that kind of a difference in life, the thing that you would love to run to to be a part of. And that's the kind of freedom, that's the kind of hope, that's the kind of passion that when we see this right, we'll have. We'll do anything to fight the fight, to be a part of His team, to see His good works, to love Him, to serve Him, to lay down anything as far as a faith step when we settle this issue. Now, I want to make a transition that at first may seem a little awkward. You know, if we see Him as good like this, we get to celebrate all the good things He's done through us. And, and a few weeks ago, we talked to you about the fact that we were going to be bringing you early in the year uh, an idea and a plan of what we as board, as staff, as myself have been praying about for a, lo- for a number of months now as to where God would take us at Quest in the coming year and His plan for us. God has been doing amazingly good things among us. He's been healing people's lives. He's been bringing people to Him. He's been proving to us over and over again that we don't have to prove Him to somebody, that God will show themselves and they will understand and follow Him. And and, and we're learning to live this life as friends with faith. But I think and we believe as we've used this metaphor that God is inviting us to go above and beyond to pursue Him because we feel like we are at this place of opportunity at Quest where we can do something wonderful to bring His goodness to each one of our lives in deeper ways and to people in the community. So to introduce that, I, wanna, I want you to just watch this video and we're going to be talking about that. God has placed us in a wonderful community that is full of people living and succeeding at the American dream. Yet that dream often results in a pace of life and expectations that can take all the color out of life. God is working through Quest to help people regain the color of life by discovering a life-giving faith. 
In 2010, God has done some great things among us to begin solidifying the vision of living life as friends with faith. Where the church has gone, not just in the last year, but in the last several years, has been a, a growth internally. Uh, we, who have been here for a long time, really wanted to see the church grow in ways that can't be measured. That is, spiritual growth, uh, emotional growth, maturity, things that the world really doesn't look at. I believe uh, God has taken us through a process of refining quest and really putting us in a position to handle substantial growth. This community has just has so many, so much growth, so many families, so many children. And I think God is, it's no accident that he's put us in this position. One of the key aspects is the vision, the clarity of vision and the intention of being and living life as friends and, and uh, making the church just a place that um, is, is just an exciting place for our spiritual growth and development, not just ours, but for others. In 2010, 25 people declared Jesus as their Lord through baptism. Over 225 adults engaged in a small group intentionally pursuing faith friendships. Over 50% of adults and youth engaged in regular serving in the various ministries at Quest. And more than 20% of visitors made Quest their home church. I really like the idea uh, of, of doing this life together and being friends with faith. Uh, that really has stuck with me, uh, with Ross talking about being friends with faith. and. I see a lot of people being invited to our church that maybe they don't know who Jesus is. In 2011, we want to go above and beyond as a church. I think the key aspect that when we talk about going above, above and beyond is um, getting outside of ourselves to really embrace the fullness of what God's calling us individually and corporately as a church to be as an outreach and a, and a witness to the people of Westerville and New Albany and Gahanna and this whole area. Our theme verse for this whole campaign comes from Ephesians 3.20 and it says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond, immeasurably more, the text actually says, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that has worked within us, to him be glory in the church. And that's what the campaign is all about, for us to cooperate with God to go that little extra step above and beyond like we were all taught as kids to honor God and to do something great in this community. If we gotta start somewhere, I say I believe God wants us to go above and beyond. It's it's it, it, it's it's something simple that my dad taught me when I was a kid. When I mowed somebody's lawn, he said, "Take their paper to the door, do just a little bit extra." And it's a value that I've carried with me all my life, and it's a value I've carried with me in my spiritual walk, of a going a little above and beyond. Because it seems to me that when I go a little above and beyond, God meets me with that faith step, and I discover some of the biggest faith lessons that I've learned in my life. Now. I want to dispel something so you'll actually listen to the rest of what I'm telling. Yes, this involves us needing to raise some money to set some goals to do some things that we really want to do above and beyond our normal budget or above and beyond our normal giving. But to me, in the end, it's not really about the money. The money for some of you, God will speak to you and you will discover a faith step in your finances that he wants to do that will be a huge 
monument that you'll be able to testify to your kids in the future of God's faithfulness. And I hope that you'll experience that. But this is really about the dream of God for us. That's the reason I asked you last week to dream. Have you been dreaming? Have you been taking some time to dream? To figure out what God wants for you in 2011? What God wants you to do as far as a mission of of being a part of something bigger than yourself? To make a difference in your life? Are you trusting that God will speak to you about that? You see, when we talk about money, when we talk about things like this, everybody just focuses on the money and forgets the dream, but it's really not. It's really not. You know, I don't know how to say this enough. I don't want anybody feeling guilt. I don't want anybody feeling shame. I don't want anybody feeling pressure about this. What I want you to do is pray. And if God says give sacrificially of your time and give sacrificially of your money, then I want you to do that. If he says give the same way you're giving, then I want you to do that. I want you to go to God and use this as an opportunity to hear his voice for the dream for your life. And for however that dream, because God's called you to quest, some of that dream will connect here as well. But I hope that dream that he gives you talks about how he wants you to relate to your people at your work setting, how he wants you to relate to people in your community, how he wants you to give there as well. And you know what? I trust God that that he's going to provide exactly what we need to accomplish his mission. Today I wanted to take a moment as part of this to tell you a dream that, that I had. A literal dream. We've talked in the past about how God uses dreams. We see it all over the Bible about how God uses dreams to lead people. I want to tell you a dream that I had in 2007, a year before we ever even knew about this place, two, over two years before we ever came here, that God gave me that actually was a key part in leading Wendy and I to make the choice to say this is what God is calling us to do. But more than that, The dream, as you'll see, has more to do than just with me. It has to do with, I think, God revealing his passion and his heart for who we are as a church. So let me just let me just tell you that. And and, and as I tell you, just try to picture what I'm saying, because a dream tells a thousand. The picture tells a thousand words. And that's the reason God sometimes speaks to speaks to some dreams. It was 2007, I had this dream, and I'm not going to tell you the whole part because just a little bit of it deals only with me. I'm going to tell you the part that deals with all of us. I remember walking into this, this hotel in this dream, and, and, and I knew I was in Ohio. I don't know how I knew I was in Ohio. I don't have, I don't have really any relationships here. I don't have any connection here. I never dreamed of being in Ohio. This just wasn't part of, part of the map for me. But I knew in the dream, I just knew that I was in Ohio, and I found myself standing on a balcony of this, of this hotel high up overlooking this beautiful suburb, midwestern suburb. It's kind of sad. I, I remember thinking in, in the dream in my mind, saying, God, God, what's this about? And then all of a sudden, this beautiful suburb with this, with this bridge and this river and lake in the background and stuff just, just completely changed in front of my eyes to this strip mine. And how, how many of you have ever seen a strip mine? You, you ever seen a picture of a strip mine? I mean, miles across, half a mile deep. It's just ugly. It's brown. It's gray. It's dingy. And in this dream, there were two windy roads coming out of this strip mine, and they were full of these full of these cars, and this will tell you how little of a car buff I am. They're, they were like these 1940s types of cars you see, the kind of the bulky, rounded, just kind of, you know, whatever. And they were all in pristine condition, just 
charcoal gray, but in pristine condition. And the whole scene was just these, these block colors. But, but there were hundreds of these cars trying to follow this path to get out of the strip mine. And then in just an instant, it switched from these cars being a mile away to, to people in, instead of cars, people in those same rows. And it was like from me to the second row away. And I could see them. And, and there were people. And the, the people were all dressed in nice business suits, kind of charcoal gray business suits. And, and the first thing that I noticed about them was that, was that their skin tone was, was ashen. They looked like they were walking dead. God gives dreams about zombies, I guess. I don't know. But they looked like they were ashen and, and they were dead. And, and I just had this overwhelming sense of compassion, this, this sense that, that the people were so hungry. There was this forced sameness. They all had the same car. They all were dressed the same. They were all in a line. There was nothing personal about anything. It was just trying to escape this sameness, this, this oppression, this sense of, of a strip mine and of death and of, of no life and no color no creativity, no individuality in their life. And in the dream, all that God said was, I'm doing something significant. Do you want to join it as a leader in it? And my answer was yes, and the dream ended. Now here's what I want you to hear. This dream, yes, God used it to lead us here. But he said, I'm already doing something significant. It means he was already at work in you and in this community to bring his color, which is the way he spoke to me in the dream. I want to bring my color to this community. And I got to tell you, this is, this is kind of an interesting confirmation for us. When we first came here, the very first time we came with the whole family, we were driving for about 10 minutes or 15 minutes into the area, and, and, and my, my youngest looks, looks up and the other two echoed it as well immediately without us even saying anything. They looked at it and they said, Dad, it's all really nice, but it's all the same. There's so much pressure in our culture to perform. There's so much pressure to succeed. There's so much pressure to look the part, be the success. And it drains the life and color out of our lives. The creativity and the, and the kind of dream that God wants us to have for our life gets pressed by conformity. Even the little bit of time here, just looking at the, the religious heritage of this area, there's so many of our religious heritages of you here and of people in the community I talk to are, are so much about performing, about looking right, about looking the part, about doing the right thing, and, and, and there's not really any real relationship in life in that. And I believe that God is doing something among us that He's going to do that's going to lead us into bringing color to people's lives in this community, bring His vibrancy, bring His life, bring a life-giving faith to them that they have not even imagined. And in the process, He's going to do the same for us. And He's going to do it through us learning to be great friends, honest friends, because nobody likes to follow in a line. There was no personalness in this dream at all. And I think what He wants to do is He wants us to walk alongside people just like we talked about today. The pain that we've talked about today causes death in our faith. 
it causes pain, it causes divorce, it causes all sorts of things to go on in our life when we don't answer the issues of pain. And God wants us to allow Him, by us learning to be great friends, walking with people in the darkness, for them to walk out of that strip mine and find His color in life. To me, that's the dream. That's the thing that keeps me going. That's the sense of what God's doing here. Something special, something unique. The other thing he said was, I'm going to do something significant. There were hundreds of cars. There were thousands of people. And I'm not saying we're going to be, I'm not, I'm not about to get up here and say we're going to be a really, really large church. I don't care if we're a large church. What I care is that we continue to bring color to people's life, to bring God's presence and life to them so they find Him and find the joy of the way that He's created them, that they find friendship. And whether that means we end up as a church of a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand, or, or we end up as a church of 500 that just multiplies a bunch of churches or, or sees people come to Him and then they end up going to other churches. I don't care. And we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about how big God is or isn't going to make us. All we have to do is join Him in the dream and He'll work that out and it'll be great. If we live as friends, it doesn't matter how, great, how big we grow. God's going to do something special through us. And that's what I want to invite us to. That's what I want to invite you to. I want you to not think about money. Not until the week of the 23rd of this month. Then I'm going to ask you to pray and see what God would have you do as a faith step, that He would speak to you, that you would know it's not me pressuring you to do that, that you would know it's not somebody else that you're comparing yourself to who's pressuring you to do that, that it's not guilt, it's not shame, but you would know that God is speaking to you and you can enter that level of giving as a faith step that God's inviting you to. But I don't want you to think about money now because it's about the dream. How does God want you to bring color to other people's lives? How does He want you to discover His color in ways you've never experienced it before? Dream that dream. Hear from God on that. Trust Him that He's going to speak to you. Okay? It's not about our need. It's not about my pressure. It's not about me selling a vision. There's no one greater than our God. He wants to speak to you about your dream, your role. Follow Him, no one else. Let's dream God's dreams. If you came and you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a great week, Quest. God bless.